Hello everyone this is Sonali Mangal and welcome to another episode of Learn Educate Discover On this podcast we invite people from different professions on each of our episodes and we ask them a range of questions to try and understand what their job is all about The goal of this podcast is to try and educate our listeners about as many different kind of jobs as we can so that someone listening to the show can decide does a certain job sound interesting to them and if yes how do they go about exploring it further Now on today's episode we are going to be talking about startup recruiting for MBAs. And this should be a very interesting discussion for anyone who is interested in working at a startup and is curious about how to break in. Uh but this will be in particular a very interesting discussion for anyone who wants to work at a startup but does not have the typical background that you might find at a lot of tech startups which is that of an engineer. someone with a computer science background or someone who has already worked at startups in the past so if you have more of a business background someone who maybe has an mba maybe you did your mba a few years ago this should be a helpful discussion so our guest today is jessica brody and she is the director of people and talent at crunchbase and i'm sure most of you are familiar with crunchbase but just in case you're not crunchbase is a database that spun out of techcrunch a few years ago and they basically have a lot of really good information on startups small companies large companies the people who are working at these companies and those who fund them so a really good database they raised about very recently this year they raised 18 million dollars in series b funding and jessica as the director of people and talent over there will be sharing her insights on how best you can recruit for startups especially for mbas so i hope you enjoyed this discussion and find it helpful and with that let's welcome jessica Jessica, hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. I am so happy to have you on because startups are really the rage right now. So many people want to get into startups, but it's not very easy for someone who does not have the typical engineering, computer science background. So I'm excited to get your insights on this. Um so before we sort of get into the weeds I wanted to make sure that we are on the same page as at least as far as the language is concerned so when you refer to a startup what does that mean and I'm trying to understand what size of the organization are we talking about or what level of funding perhaps Yeah I think that's a great pl- a great question and a great place to start I think the term startup means a lot of different things to different people So for every startup in the Bay Area that you'll see, you'll probably find just as many opinions on what the definition of a startup is. So mm-hmm. I think frankly that what that means is it's some sort of formula looking at things like a company's valuation, their profitability, how many years they've been in business, how many number of employees they have. Uh and so once you reach perhaps a couple hundred employees or you've been in business for more than 3 years, you may not really be a startup anymore. So I think something to think about is that the term startup is often used interchangeably with the term tech. So I'm working for a tech company or I'm working for a startup. Um uh, but I think it's a very loosely held definition here. Right, right. Yeah, I mean so as an example, working at Google is does not mean that you're working at a startup. It's a huge company. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I guess we're talking, I mean, for the purposes of this conversation, we're talking about an organization which probably has let's say between one to what a hundred odd employees and maybe some kind of annual recurring revenue 
Sure. I would say, I would call it somewhere between one in 200 or one in 300 employees. Okay. Um, I think there's, there's certainly a level of how quickly it takes a company to get there. So if a company's been in business for two years, but they've managed to get to 300 employees, I'd still likely call them a startup. Okay. And yeah, and, and I guess I mentioned revenue, but you know, you could be something like a Facebook in its early stages when they did not have any revenue. So may, maybe you have funding, I guess, or, or is the only qualify the number of employees and, uh, and maybe the duration? You know, I, I think it's many things. It, it could be the valuation of a company. So for, perhaps if the company's worth a billion dollars, hmm. uh, likely there's, it's reasonable to assume that they've been in business for at least a few years right. uh, and they have a few, a few hundred employees to have gotten to that point. Um, so it's, I don't know if there's an exact formula, but I think it's a combination of those things of things like valuation and their profit and how long they've right. been in business. Okay. All right. So that's helpful. That sets the stage for the conversation then. So my next question for you then is that there's there's sort of this feeling that startups do not really like or respect actually MBAs. So would you agree with that? Uh, I'd absolutely disagree. I think okay. that this notion is categorically false. Uh, I think, sure, there may be some companies out there that don't specifically look for people with graduate degrees. But in my experience, that philosophy, philosophy typically applies more to people with things like PhDs. Uh, I, I've worked with nearly 15 different Bay Area startups in my consulting days and now being at Crunchbase. And never once have I heard a company say that they wouldn't hire an MBA. Uh, I think likely that this misconception stems from the fact that many startups don't participate in the business school campus recruiting events. Hmm. Um, but there are a lot of reasons for that. And I don't think any of them have anything to do with uh, companies not being interested in hiring MBAs. Yeah, I mean, actually, the reason I asked that, I mean, of course, I'm not in the startup ecosystem, so I probably cannot say this with surety. But for example, I've heard a bunch of Paul Graham talks, who's the founder of Y Combinator, refer to MBAs as suits, like, you know, a bunch of suits who will come in <laughs> and do something. And I, th- I think another anecdotal thing is I heard if you hire a rock star engineer, you can assume that your valuation goes up by like some millions of dollars. But if you hire an MBA, you can assume your valuation goes down by like 500K, something something like that, right? So I, I know <laughs> I know these are like exaggerations. Uh, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the correct thing is that an MBA may not take away from your application, but it doesn't add anything either. Maybe an MBA is just, it could add a lot of value, let's say for a consulting job, but not so much for something in a startup. So, you know, I think that's a really interesting notion, and I disagree. Certainly, there's that concept of what's called the 10x engineer, uh, that they're going to bring an incredible amount of value. But I don't see any reason why an MBA wouldn't bring value to your company. Uh, I think what's different in the startup or the tech world is that there isn't this prescribed amount of time that you spend in a given position. So think if you went into investment banking right out of undergrad, likely you'd spend two years as an analyst move into an associate role for two or three years, perhaps, and you make a move on to business school and then come back. Uh, there, We don't have that sort of definition in the tech world. And so um, I, I still don't see why there would be less of a value to someone in an MBA role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's, there's certainly benefits to having someone in that position or yeah. who's had that experience. Um, I think the misconception could be too that 
you know, if you're in tech right out of undergrad and you go into tech for a few years and then you leave to go to business school, uh, that's, it's not as definitive that you're going to come back at a more elevated position or at a higher salary. Um, in many instances, and I'm sure everyone has a different opinion on this is, uh, it, it almost would be more beneficial for you to stay and, right. and not leave tech. Right, right. Yeah, no, and this is helpful. And because actually what you're saying echoes something which I think Sheryl Sandberg also said recently that uh, an MBA can be helpful, but it's not necessary to work in tech. So, which is, I guess, what you're saying. But I'm glad that you're saying this because that's good news for a lot of people who do not have <laughs> this typical background and want to work in a startup. So uh, you mentioned that, you know, you are aware of a lot of startups who are very open and happy to hire MBAs. Um, how How would you... Like if I'm an MBA student or, or a former MBA, uh, but, you know, let's say working in consulting or something else, what kind of startups do you think would be open to hiring MBAs? Is is there a certain category or some, some way I can identify that these guys would be would be open to this kind of profile? I think it's safe to say that nearly every startup is open to open to hiring MBAs. Um, usually what happens is that a company will have their own philosophy around what level of hires they're making. So as an example, in the really early days of a company, they may not necessarily have the budget to pay for salaries for multiple experienced hires. So right, the assumption would likely be that an MBA uh, is an experienced hire. Either they've been in the business world for a few years out of undergrad, you know, went to school for a couple of years and are now likely five to eight years out of school. Uh, they, a company may not have the budget to be able to afford someone like that. And so they may choose to reserve that money for a more senior engineering hire or a product hire. Uh, but, you know, even startups under 100 employees, they're not typically hiring in multiples for a certain position. So as an example, they may have one marketing role open or they may have one product manager open. Uh, so while they may not put their fingers out or their feelers out there specifically for MBAs, they're absolutely open to hiring someone with an MBA. So that's actually a very interesting point. So what you're saying is that it's almost as if when I'm applying and usually, you know, MBAs will have some prior work ex before MBAs. So by definition, they're slightly senior or they've at least spent a few years working. The assumption on part of the company is that this guy or gal will expect a certain level of compensation. And so they're just priced out, I guess. Is, is that what you're saying? That, that's an interesting point because that almost means that, you know, maybe when you're applying, you should sort of make it clear that, hey, I, let's talk first before we decide what the compensation should be. I think there's an element to that where you can certainly price yourself out. But part of it is the level of the position or perhaps the complexity of what you're doing. Uh, so companies will develop these philosophies and say, you know, let's look at my marketing strategy. What do I think I need to get this done? Maybe it's something really simple like social media campaigns. Uh, and I, I don't mean to discount how uh, difficult those can be. But if, there, if you're looking for someone to get Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn up and running, you may not need someone with a business degree to get to that point. So there's an element of of the salary piece there, but the level of the complexity of the position. So if you're hiring for more managerial or leadership roles, uh, likely that would be a position that's more applicable. I see. I see. Okay. And is there a way, let's say that I am very interested in a company and it's a small company and most of the positions that they have open seem to be 
you know, more junior level, can I still apply, but sort of make it evident that, hey, I'm okay to start small, but then, you know, like with any, with any good startup, there is going to be a lot of growth. So more and more things should come in. Sure. I mean, I think that's okay. Um, I think, you know, again, this is all, all a philosophy piece. So the company may be okay hiring someone that's several years out of school with an MBA to do more of a, an entry level or a junior level marketing position. Hmm. Uh, but they may say that, hey, their expectations may be unrealistic. So even though they're okay with coming in at a lower salary and a lower position, uh, why would they when they could likely go to another company at a higher salary mm. or a more senior level type of position there too? Mm. Um, so, so some again, like some companies are open to that, but I think generally speaking, people don't want to hire someone that is likely way overqualified for a role. I see. Okay. So what what roles do you think are typically good for MBAs to apply for? Yeah, just about everything. Uh, I know at Crunchbase specifically, we have MBAs in both our marketing and product teams, hmm. but I can see direct, uh, directly applicable skill sets to things like pre-sales. You know, if you had worked in a consulting role before and you're doing product implementation or you're doing, frankly, a pre-sales role where you're trying to understand the technical requirements of your client in order to provide them some sort of software or technical solution, uh, that's a great sort of track to get into. But anything from business development where you're sourcing and identifying new partners for your company to work with, uh, to obviously product where you're developing the strategy uh, and developing a a software product that a company is building. But even things like HR and recruiting are not out of the norm. You know, if you'd worked in a consulting firm before doing things like organizational development, uh, that is very much an applicable uh, sort of background to have moving into an HR and recruiting role, though likely at a smaller scale because the right. company is typically a lot smaller than perhaps what your clients would be in a consulting world. Right. Okay. So, I mean, pretty much everything, although I have heard that for product roles, having a technical background can be very, very helpful. And that probably varies Absolutely. from company to company, but um, they do they do prefer that. You know, the, that's a... Again, that's a that's sort of a philosophy. I found that product managers often come from two different types of background uh, backgrounds. Either they were engineers, so perhaps they had a computer science or an IT or even sort of a broad engineering degree from undergrad, uh, but have you know directly gone into an engineering position and then progressed into a product role, uh, or they're coming from a consulting background. Mm. You know, I'll say our our director of product at Crunchbase was a consultant before he went to Wharton uh, and then ended up being a product manager here at Crunchbase after a couple stints at other companies. So uh, I, it dep- again, depending on the complexity of the product and the type of product management that you're doing, uh, that you can absolutely come yeah. from a non-technical background. Yeah. And actually, you know, this is interesting because I think it depends a lot on what the product is, because let's say you're designing, um, I don't know, the next machine learning algorithm to do something. I guess if you're the PM on something like that, you need to be fairly technical. But let's say you're designing some kind of fintech product, financial technology product, and you come from a banking background, then even if you do not have a technical background, you may still have a lot of domain expertise, which is also very helpful to build a good product. So like, would you say that's how you can compensate for not having the technical side? 
Uh, sure. I think it's dependent upon industry. It's dependent upon what specifically you're doing. So you use the example of, uh, you know, someone coming from the banking industry, but working for a fintech company. Well, if they're doing things like in understanding how to connect to other banks, so perhaps uh, their product is uses APIs to connect to other companies or to other loan servicing organizations or whatever it is that's external, mm-hmm. perhaps that may be slightly more technical and so would require someone to have that background. But if you're looking for someone who is understanding what the user experience is like Hmm. and what's the interaction that a person has with the screen or has with the product while they're using it. Um, That could be someone that perhaps is coming from more of a consulting background. Right, right. That's a great point. Okay. So uh, I know you mentioned, uh, and I will sort of push you a little bit on this, but (laughs) I know you mentioned that pretty much all roles are open to MBAs, but just based on your experience, you, you know, you've been doing this for a while. Is is there something like I've noticed a lot of MBAs or more MBAs, let's say, in BD, business development or marketing compared to, let's say, I don't know, growth or product? Is is there something like that? Yeah, I think that I, I don't often see engineers coming from uh, business school. Um, sometimes if you get to bigger companies where there's likely a, a large number of engineering managers who aren't necessarily technical anymore or not necessarily hands-on, that is more of an obvious progression there. Um, but I, I would guess that most engineers, if they're coming from, you know, they have a computer science degree or they're going into tech immediately out of undergrad or immediately, you know, even after high school and not even going to undergrad, they won't likely see the benefit of going to business school, business school. You know, it makes more uh, more sense for their careers, whether it be financially or just in, in general skill set, to stay in industry as opposed to going to school, uh, because that's two years and, and that can be a lifetime in engineering. Right. Um, but you certainly will see more people from business backgrounds in, in marketing um, or business development. You know, there's certainly a lot of skills that are used, or even things like operations or strategy. Uh, so some of these not necessarily technical roles, right? Uh, because that you know typically the, the the pedigree of the person is more applicable to those roles that they they would be doing, right? Right. I mean, the only reason I ask that is that sometimes if for whatever reason, right? Like let's say you're not being able to break in or you're not being able to get the role that you want to get, because I I do hear especially in the product role, as an example, it's not very easy for people to break in if you, if they do not have technical backgrounds. Then maybe you get into one of these other associated roles first, but then you are, so you, you observe the startup ecosystem up front, you see what it's like, and then you can move into the, your, whatever your ultimate role is. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely a great way to go about it. I mean, I think one of the best ways to, to observe what people do within a company or the different departments or disciplines within each of those departments is to observe it. So whether that be taking internships, you know, between uh, your first and second year of business school, uh, or even going to bigger companies and doing internships that have, you know, more, uh, more developed MBA internship programs or rotational programs where it gets you a glimpse into that. But uh, that's a great way. So you have the experience that you can observe and then potentially see the the opportunity to move into a different department into a role that perhaps interests you more. Right. So another thing, which again is, uh, I guess, 
one, again one of those impressions and you can tell me if it's uh, correct or not is that because we are talking about small companies not more than 200 or 300 odd employees there is an expectation that people who are hired can to the extent possible hit the ground running you know like uh, unlike a large company where you know you could take like a quarter or even six months to really ramp up there isn't that kind of time available and there there aren't a lot of people who have the time to actually coach you and mentor you just because there's so much to do in a startup so would you say that's true you know, I think generally speaking, that's the ideal scenario. Uh, although, again, it's not always the case. And there are a lot of factors, I think, that impact whether or not having someone that can hit the ground running is even possible. So I talked a little bit about the budget stuff in, uh, in a couple of the, the questions before this. But, mm. you know, as an example, senior engineers, they typically weren't really high salaries, especially in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. And a company's budget or frankly lack thereof could mean that they can only hire entry level engineers. Perhaps so perhaps it's people directly out of boot camps or directly out of undergrad with CS degrees where they don't have to pay as much. Um, so they'll if a company develops that philosophy that they're open to hiring junior folks, they're likely going to dedicate more time to train them. So, you know, that that same rule can be applied to marketing roles or to product roles or mm. uh, to business development positions. So again, that comes typically comes from the top or it comes from managers of those given departments and they decide how they feel is the best way to go about building their teams. I see. So I guess like when you're applying then, as you're going through figuring out which startups to apply to, that's probably one piece of research that you can do that, okay, you know, what is the team composed of so far? to get a sense for, you know, are they hiring people who are just sort of coming with a lot of domain expertise or is there some level of on-the-job training that's happening? You know, I think that's you can read into that with a certain lens, but I'd caution people to not look too much into that. I mean, I think it's a great resource if you're you're looking at perhaps the pedigrees of people where they had gone to school or where they had worked in the past, but just because they a company has done that in the past doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do that moving forward. Hmm. So a company could say at the very beginning that, you know, hey, we only need a junior level business development associate. So someone right out of school or someone uh, in a sales position and we'll train them. But further down the road, when we've established a product market fit and perhaps we have larger scale customers, likely that means that they'd need to hire some more senior folks. Hmm. I see. That makes sense. All right. So let's get into then the actual recruiting piece then. And I guess I, I would want to address address this from the point of view of two sets of people. One is someone who is either in business school right now, and then the other is someone who has an MBA, but maybe left a few years ago and then is in uh, in a typical post-MBA kind of career right now. So startups do not generally, I mean, one, they don't have a lot of resources, so they're not present on campus. They do not have very active recruiting presence. So what's the best way to, one, learn about, hey, these are the, all the exciting startups that are out there, and B, then actually recruit for them and get noticed by them? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. I think the onus is really on the candidate here. Uh, Again, this is where I think a lot of this misconception stems from about startups not wanting to hire MBAs. So if you think of it like dating, you know, if you go on a date with someone that does all of the work for you, right, they're pursuing you, 
they're asking you out the second that you're interested in them. Uh, you know, they're deciding where to take you to dinner. They tell you exactly <laughs> what time to be there. Yeah. They promptly ask you out on a second date that takes place in a prescribed number of days after that first date. Uh, you know, they're constantly letting you know how they feel about you and that they're really interested uh, interested in you. And then they put a title on the relationship within a very reasonable amount of time, <laughs> right? Why would you make the effort to go and then pursue someone else? So someone else did all this work for you. And I think those same rules really apply to MBAs. So oftentimes business school students come from a consulting or a finance background hmm. where they were being interviewed in undergrad through a really structured campus recruiting process. Yeah. And it was really standardized, right? You know, you were given an offer for the second interview within a certain amount of time. You were given an offer on a certain date. Uh, likely you knew where you were going to work months in advance of even graduating college. Yeah. The same thing very much happens in business school. Uh, big companies come to ca- campus recruiting events and students often pick a recruiting track to focus on. So consulting, investment banking, tech, uh, but companies and attendance are typically a lot larger than what you're seeing in Silicon Valley in, in mm. the startup space. Mm. Um, you know, or maybe they're more well-known companies like the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. So deciding that you want to go to a startup requires a lot more initiative and the roles reverse. So you likely become the one that's pursuing these companies. So some of the ways that you can go about that, I'd, I'd start by determining what industries or products that interest you. Mm. So whether that be a specific industry you've worked in the past. So as an example, if uh, you were in finance and a lot of your clients were in the retail space, perhaps companies that are in the retail space that or, or partner with them. So think like companies like Instacart. Uh, maybe that's a really good, obvious route for you. And as a bit of a shameless plug, uh, we Crunchbase has a search and discovery tool called Crunchbase Pro. And so you can actually search for companies in a given industry in a specific geographic location, you can identify all of the companies that fit that criteria uh, or that fit that industry that you're looking to get into. Another good spot or place to go about determining what companies you'd be interested in are things like job boards or job job aggregate sites like Mm. Indeed. Um, Go to places like Glassdoor where you can research more information on those companies and see whether or not people like working there. And I think going to LinkedIn as well and looking at their job boards so you can understand the types of roles that people are hiring for uh, and do some more searches on job titles that interest you. Right. I think AngelList is another good resource, although I think a lot of times they have a lot of really small startups to then, of course, big ones. But this is very, very helpful. and, And I find this insight so interesting that it's almost as if, and, and, you know, maybe I do relate with this, but maybe an MBA student can be so used to a very structured interview process. And if your expectation is that, you know, hey, you know, if 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 the recruiter is interested in me, you know, they're going to they're going to email me and I will know very well that, yes, they really want me here. I guess I should probably a not expect a structured process and b I should not feel dejected if if that, you know, if there is not an ongoing back and forth happening all the time, all the time, I guess. Yeah, and I, I, I think smart companies will have more of a solidified recruiting process. Uh, perhaps at the you know employee one to ten stage, there likely isn't a, a solidified process in place. Yeah. Uh, but usually around twenty or thirty employees, uh, maybe even upwards of fifty, that's when companies are really hiring recruiters. But 
hopefully there are people on the team already that express the importance of of having a defined interview process. So whether that's you know a phone screen and two on-sites or two phone screens and an on-site, uh, at least something. But again, like it, it never hurts to to assume that you should continue to pursue that company. Absolutely. Okay. And and then I want to go down the process that you identified. So one is that you should try and identify what kind of industry or product you're interested in. So let's say I do that, right? And and, and for the purposes of taking an example, let's say I say that, hey, I, I would really want to work at Crunchbase. Um, what should I do next? That's a great question. Um, so a couple things you can do is it's very meta. <laughs> look at Crunchbase on Crunchbase. So look at our Crunchbase <laughs> profile. It gives you a, a nice snapshot of the folks that work there, a little bit about some of the products that we've built, mm-hmm. who our investors are, how much funding we've raised. Uh, you know, it gives a, a pretty good snapshot. Unfortunately, being Crunchbase, we keep our Crunchbase profile <laughs> very up to date. Um, but a couple other really good resources, you know, again, use Glassdoor. Look at what people are saying about Crunchbase. What do they think about the vision of the company? What do they think about our executive or our CEO? Mm-hmm. That gives you a good glimpse into whether people like working there or not. Uh, LinkedIn is another good place to go. Uh, you can get a, a, a more of a snapshot into specific people and their backgrounds uh, so it can give you some more insight into whether or not you know anyone at those companies or uh, if you have a similar background or perhaps you even went to the same undergrad or business school as them. Mm. It's a great place to go. I see. So I guess basically you're trying to spend a lot of time then just understanding the company and the people that work there, the kind of product it is, what other employees are saying about the company. Um and, and, and then what do I do? So I, I guess I'm going to try and identify, okay, which role seems interesting to me. Sure. So let's Yeah, say, so take a look at our career site. I mean, I yeah. think, you know, look at a company's career site, see what jobs they have open. Yeah. Um, I, again, use that with a grain of salt and don't think that that's an absolute. You know, that's, that's something we do on our website. If you don't see a role that's the right fit, feel free to email us. Oh. Let us know what it is that you're looking for. Uh, Tell us about your background. You may not necessarily know what you're looking for, and that's okay as well. And so at least then a recruiter, you know, I get an email from a candidate that says, hey, you know, I spent three years at Deloitte. Uh, I went to UCLA undergrad. I went to Kellogg for business school. I'm not sure where I'm looking to go at this point. Do you have any roles that you think would be a good fit? And that's a great way to at least sort of get your foot in the door and you know, perhaps there's another role that is not officially open, but it's on the the plan for the year. Mm. Uh, or, you know, good companies often hire opportunistically too. So they could see someone that's a good fit and say, gosh, you know, I don't have this open headcount today, but I could create a role for a really good person. We certainly have a need for this. Oh, wow. um, okay. That is, okay. So I wouldn't have guessed that. So that is, that is amazing because it's almost as if, like, hey, the career site may not have everything. So you don't have to assume that unless and until what you're looking for is there, you know, there's no point in even applying. So I should just reach out to you. I mean, generally, are your emails available publicly? Sometimes companies have their email addresses available. Uh, if it's a small company, I think it's a really good guess is to assume that it's that person's first name at company.com. Yeah. Uh, so, or even companies have email alias things like we do have careers at crunchbase.com. Right. Uh, so we, we typically link to that on, uh, on our careers page and on Crunchbase. And so you can, 
actually contacts us directly and it goes directly to my inbox. I see. Uh, But you can always guess, like first initial, last name, uh, try that out. Worst comes to worst, you go to LinkedIn, you send them an in-mail. Yeah, actually, I mean, it's surprising. I mean, through some Googling and through some sort of permutation and combination, you can get people's email addresses. So yeah, uh, you're right. It's in it. I realize that I'm pretty well, pretty well versed in the art of sleuthing yeah, <laughs> as a recruiter, but, uh, but it's not that complicated to fill out. And frankly, even if it goes, let's say you have two people at the company with the same name, if it goes to the wrong person, likely That's they're going to forward the email. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I want to talk a little bit more about this because how can a candidate stand out? Because like one thing which I've heard a lot is that as a recruiter, I'm sure you get a bunch of requests, right? So what will make you respond to one request like this, where the person does not really know what they want to do, but they're looking for something to do at your company? Yeah, what would make them stand out in your eyes? I think something that's highly personalized is important. Um, I I get a ton of emails and applications that, you know, either, you know, someone's applying to 10 jobs all at once. And so they put the wrong company name oh, or send me an email saying, dear sir. <laughs> so oh, yeah. um, don't, don't assume that someone's mail uh, or, you know, just make sure that you're checking your notes. Again, that's it. That problems happen all the time or yeah. mistakes happen all the time. So it's not a big deal. But I think what stands out to me is being clear and concise. Uh, people have a tendency to over-exaggerate their experience or use too many words uh, Mm. or sound disingenuous. And I think that's the stuff that typically turns people off. Uh, You know, as a recruiter, I look for something that's very clear on your resume that I can get a full snapshot of what what is in your background. So Mm. it doesn't need to be more than a page, but tell me what you actually did there. Right. Don't don't tell me what your team was responsible for. I want to know what specific benefit you brought to that company and what you did in that role that was beneficial. Can you um, can you maybe share an example to illustrate like the good the good way to do this and the not so good way to do this? Sure. Uh, I think you know some of my favorite resumes are from graphic designers. Um, you know, I think that's likely not a path for people uh, with MBAs. Perhaps yeah. it is. It's great if it is. Um, so that stuff always stands out to me because they're typically able to demonstrate their work. Uh, for people in the business world, it's less obvious, mm. right? So you're looking at a lot of different factors. So whether it be the schools that they went to, uh, the companies that they worked for, uh, you know, specifically what their role was. And I think uh, it's it's hard to say what's going to make you stand out, but I would say being honest um, and being genuine about what your your role actually was is probably the best way to stand out. Mm. And, and write a personalized email. You know, keep it less than a paragraph. Say, "Hey, Jessica, you know, I'm I'm just about to graduate from UCLA Anderson. I didn't see anything on on your careers page that looks like it would be a good fit, but I wanted to let you know that I'm specifically interested in Crunchbase for this reason. Mm. I think I'd be a great fit for this reason." take a look at my resume. Let me know if there's something interested. If it's not today, let me know down the road if there's a role that's a better fit. So just being honest, you know, it doesn't, again, doesn't need to be too many words. Uh, but tell me what it is about Crunchbase that you like. I get a lot of people that will directly quote our tagline or, you know, our our short, what we call our our short description. Um, 
you know, they'll say something like, I want to work for Crunchbase because it's the world's most trusted business information platform. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, don't don't use buzzwords from our website. I, I think just be yourself. And to me, that's always what stands out the most because I'm looking for humans to come work with me. Right. Uh, th- these are great points, by the way, Jessica. So thank you so much for sharing. Um, sure. One idea I've heard from, uh, I guess, which which might be applicable for slightly more, smaller startups, but could work for bigger ones also is, sharing not just sort of your interest in the company but also sharing ideas on hey just fyi you know if i were to join the company these are the kind of things that i would love to do and sometimes especially when you're reaching out to smaller startups which have let's say five six seven eight people they don't even know uh you know what kind of person they should hire right because there's just so much going on so if someone comes in and gives them a whole bunch of ideas and they sound good they're just like all right, sure, go ahead, like join us and run with it, right? So just showing that level of research and interest can go a long way. Yeah, I think that's right too. I mean, I think especially at smaller companies, uh, you're likely playing in the earlier stages, perhaps a generalist role. So you may be doing a little bit of everything. Like when I came to Crunchbase, uh, initially I'd gotten there as a consultant, but uh, I was doing everything in, in, in anything, uh, you know, obviously spending a lot of time on recruiting and human resources stuff, but we were getting ready for a product launch and we didn't have anyone that was working on events. And so I spent a lot of time ordering uh, supplies for events. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if you give people the idea that you can help with certain things, they're going to hopefully find a way to uh, to make use of you yeah. uh, and assume that you're going to do lots and lots of different things that may not initially be directly applicable to what it is that your, you know, your lifelong career goal is. But, but hopefully as the, the company continues to grow, perhaps you become more specialized, but at least that way it gives you really a glimpse into how the business operates uh, holistically. Actually, that brings up another point, which is that as a recruiter, do you think that, you know, if, if I were to compare the, the sort of assessment process or evaluate the assessment process between that at a startup compared to that at a big company. And let's say it's for the same role. Do you think there would be like one or two big differences in terms of what they're trying to assess? Same role, right? Just that one is at a startup, the other as a big com- is at a big company. Do you think there are any differences or it's pretty much the same in terms of what you know, was being tested? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question. Um, it, it's hard to say. I think some of the differences would be, you know, there's... A, a couple people made this really well known. So, you know, like Steve Jobs or Mark Zuckerberg or people that didn't necessarily finish college or even go to college in the first place. So there's very much this notion in Silicon Valley varies from company to company, but sort of less importance on your, your specific education. So whether that means it doesn't matter if you went to college at all, uh, or perhaps you went to a smaller school that's less well known. Um, That may be something that uh, smaller companies have looser definitions on hmm. what the initial requirements are. Hmm. Um, but as far as testing people, the nice piece is startups don't have hiring committees. Yeah. You know, you think of the big Googles and Facebooks that uh, that typically have you interview for a general position, uh, but then have a team of people that you perhaps didn't even meet with sit down and decide whether or not you're going to be a good fit for a job. Uh, so it's certainly less bureaucratic. Yeah. Um, but as far as differences, you know, we, we can be a little bit looser on how we interview someone in the sense that, 
uh, we may not necessarily have a prescribed list of questions that we need to get through. Yeah. Um, where, you know, for years, Google had this really prescribed way of hiring people uh, that turned a lot of people off. And, you know, studies have shown that the questions asked at the time were not necessarily relevant to how well someone was going to do in a given job. Um, but, but certainly there is a lot of overlap and that will vary from startup to startup. So how difficult the hiring process is, you know, for engineers, whether or not they have a coding test, when they have a coding test, Mm. how difficult that is. Uh, some, some startups may have for a business development position or a marketing position, they'll say, you know, come up with, uh, a marketing plan for a product launch. And right. you can get that at a big company, you can get that at a small company. Um, I think the assumption would be though, is when you go to a smaller company, you're, you're doing a lot more and you're, exactly. you're likely touching more things. Yeah. Whereas at a big company, you have a very defined role yeah. and you're one of many people that are likely doing that same job. Yeah. Um, so I would say the, the the interview process is perhaps a little bit more generalized where you can be interviewing for one tiny team on one feature of a product on Google cloud. Yeah. 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 I I think you're exactly right. I think, uh, I think one of the things that I think startups try and look for is that is this person willing to get his or her hands dirty and that could come in through either evidence from your past experience. So, you know, you've done, either your own startup, you worked at on side projects or whatever. I, I remember when I, I recruited for startups briefly some time back and these were really small companies, so like three to four people companies. And almost all of them, they would actually, it wasn't a standard interview process. They would make me work with them for sometimes as long as a month. I mean, you're not working right there, but you're working on some project. And basically what they're trying to see is that is this person... Of course, like, are you competent? But then also, do I enjoy working with this person? So it's almost a test of, I mean, you're working with the team and you're working on an actual project. And at the end of it, then, you know, they decide, does it work or not? Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of companies. I, I, I take that back. I've seen some companies do that. Uh, and some companies, that is their philosophy, that every hire they make, they're hiring them sort of on this temporary or this trial basis. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I think that could be okay for more junior positions or more entry level roles. Hmm. But given the competitive nature of the hiring market right now, you're not often finding lots of people that are out of work, right? So getting someone to leave a full-time position to test something out hmm. uh, is is likely you're not able to get the quality of candidates or you'll, unless the candidate's incredibly risk averse or, or okay with being risky in a position like that right 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 right. all right so then uh i guess one more thing then is that in terms of the actual application what is a good way to apply because you know one way is to actually just you know apply on the website the other is to email the careers at crunchbase.com but i don't i'm not sure how effective those those methods are yeah i think i think you can safely assume that startups are getting a lot of applicants. Um, Mm -hmm. They may not necessarily be getting a ton of qualified applicants because it's very common to get a lot of applicants from out of the area uh, or completely underqualified or overqualified for a position. So assume that a recruiter is likely reading a lot of resumes and going over a lot of applications. I think employee referrals are one of the best ways to apply to a job. Um, So I talked a little bit about our tool Crunchbase Pro you can actually identify 
people that used to work uh, for companies you worked for in the past, or you can find all of the the companies that were founded by people that went to the same business school as you. Uh, And you can do the same thing with tools like LinkedIn and search for people that went to that same business school. Hmm. So once you have an idea of of what companies you're interested in, see if you have any connections, whether that's sort of this first degree connection of someone you actually know uh, or something that's more secondary. Perhaps you can ask for an introduction to someone that knows someone at a company right. uh, or even just do a cold reach out and say, you know, Hey Jane, I, I noticed that you went to UCLA Anderson as well. I'm about to graduate and I'm really interested in working for your company. Would you have a few minutes to chat about a position that I think you guys are hiring for. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, many companies have a referral bonus. Um, and frankly, at small companies, when people are wearing lots of hats, they're very much incentivized to find good people for jobs, right? I know I am constantly talking to my colleagues at Crunchbase about how much hiring we're doing and how they should send me employee yeah. referrals. And if they yeah. know anyone they think is remotely a, a fit for a position, come talk to me and I'll reach out to that person. Uh, So people are typically incentivized in one way or another, whether that's financially or uh, just for the sake of they want more people on their team. Right. You know, I think they're, they're typically incentivized to make those introductions and to take time to, to talk to people. Um, But I think looking for connections is absolutely one of the best ways to go about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you don't have any connections, that's likely, and that's likely the case. You know, I, I, I prefer the route of contacting me directly. Uh, certainly all applicants hit my email inbox in some capacity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you send me a personalized email, I think that makes it stand out a little bit better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, referral seems to be the, the way to go as far as applying is concerned. Um, and I think it helps to give you insight into what it's like to work for that company, too. Um you know, you can hear from that employee firsthand whether or not they like working there and what mm. what they do in their jobs and whether or not what they do seems like it could be a good fit for you. So hopefully it's this mutually beneficial relationship. Mm. Yeah. And another thing which I'm very curious about is, I mean, so generally, I guess people apply with their resumes. How important are cover letters? Oh, gosh, I think cover letters are a waste of time. I'm really okay. sorry <laughs> if I'm going to offend anyone with that. Um, I do not see a benefit to a cover letter whatsoever. Um, and I don't think it gives you any sort of advantage. Again, I'd still go back to that, uh, what I mentioned earlier about send me a really short personalized email, Hmm. you know, a quick snapshot of what your background is. You know, Hey, you worked in consulting before. Okay, great. What kind of consulting? You know, I spent three years in strategy consulting. I have my undergrad from UCLA, uh, you know, I have my MBA from Wharton or I went to GSB or whatever school that you went to. Mm. Uh, I'm looking for roles in marketing and operations and business development and sales uh, and and end it there. You know, be short yeah. and sweet. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough to not hy- hyperbolize your experience or add any <laughs> unnecessary words. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think cover letters are just not necessary. I'm I'm very happy to hear you say that because I completely agree because I think it's such an archaic thing. But you'll be surprised. Or I don't know. I have seen a lot of startups on their website. You know, they'll ask for the cover letter. Now you can say that hey, you know, you shouldn't be applying on the website at all. You should just email the recruiter or X Y Z and get a referral. But I don't know. Maybe they're using some kind of tool, and that tool, as part of its template, has a cover letter. I don't know, but. 
it's good to know that recruiters are not really paying any attention to it. Yeah, I mean, again, that's my philosophy. Um, I personally don't see the advantage. I spend a lot of time, again, I spend a lot of time reading resumes. Yeah, uh, that's a, a cover letter is just an additional thing for me to read. Yeah. Uh, so I and I think it's really hard to make yourself human in a cover letter. You know, I'd rather someone send me just a really quick personal email. Again, I'm I'm looking. If you're working for a startup. You spend a lot of time working, and so you spend a lot of time with your coworkers. Mm. I'm personally looking for people that I want to come to work with every day. Uh, they don't need to be like me, but I'm I'm looking for a human. Give me. Give me something that tells me a little bit about who you are. Mm, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm very happy to hear that. Um, <laughs> and then I, I think one another thing which a lot of people will be curious about is just the level of compensation that can be expected. And I know that this varies a lot, but if you can maybe break down sort of how startups tend to think about, okay, how much should I offer this person uh, stock or equity versus uh, your your salary itself? Uh, how do you guys generally think about this? That's a harder question to answer. Um, and that will vary. Compensation specifically will vary widely depending on the stage or the funding round of the company. Mm. Uh, but a safe assumption is the earlier you get into a company, the lower the salary and the higher the equity, mm. right? So there's that advantage to get into a company when they're smaller. So you have a greater potential upside as the company continues to grow or you know, raises more funding and then perhaps has an exit of some sort down the road. Uh, it's a safer assumption to say if you get into a later stage tech company, you know, whether that be Series C, D, E, or whatever it is, uh, you'll likely get higher cash compensation mm-hmm. uh, and then perhaps a lower stock option um, or so, lower amount of yeah. equity in there as well. Yeah. Uh, so, but though, again, those numbers vary very widely. And because there is no prescribed uh, you know, roadmap for how one progresses. Uh, it, it varies from company to company. It's harder to say, you know, I've seen Stanford GSB grads make 80 K right out of, uh, uh, out of, (laughs) right out of GSB in a marketing role. Um, but that person had a considerable amount of equity and is doing very well now, now that that company is a little bit later stage. Um, but then I've also seen people make 140,000, 150,000 right at business school at a later stage tech company. Right. Um, but I think the important thing to keep in mind is that private companies give stock options, hmm. whereas public companies give you RSUs, which have a specific dollar amount attached to it that, right. you know, is, is part of your immediate compensation where stock option is something to look at as a future opportunity as well. And, and in the hopes that, you're working for a company whose value will will increase over the time that you're there. Absolutely. I mean, that's the bet that you're that you're making, right? So just to and I and I understand that this varies a lot, but to take an example, the Stanford grad uh, that you mentioned, he or she was making eighty k in terms of cash, and what was the associated equity? Ah, uh, I I I don't know if I could tell you that off the top of my head. Um, she was an early employee, so I yeah. think under 10 employees when she joined the company. Yeah. Um, you know, again, if it's a non-technical position, yeah. uh, you'll get less equity or if it's a non-leadership role, at least at the time. Yeah. Um, so that, that could vary anywhere between 
you know, half a percent to to two percent if you're an early hire. Right, 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 right. So between zero point five to two percent, typically, of course, this could vary. Whereas, right. I guess in the later stage, if you are joining at, at the one forty, one fifty k level for cash cash compensation, in that case, what's the range of the the equity? That that'll vary depending on the stage of the company. So every company, there's very much a move to standardize the way in which tech companies and startups pay their employees. Hmm. Uh, there, there's companies popping up left and right in, in terms of uh, looking for ways to sh- sort of open source the, the compensation data. Uh, and sometimes venture capital firms will track this data as well so that they can give it to uh, their co-founders or their uh, the companies that they're investing in hmm. as a way to sort of normalize salaries. Uh, you know, for right. years there was this concept of, you know, the bigger companies would just throw or the later stage startups would just throw more money at a company. And so it it made it less of an even playing field. Hmm. Um, So I know that Crunchbase, the way that we approach this is by looking at the data. So looking at uh, what what other companies of similar stages, whether that be round of funding or valuation or uh, amount of funding, and, and obviously employee size. And so you take a look at that and attempt to establish a philosophy on, on how you pay someone. Right. Okay. And how much scope for negotiation do you think there is? I, I'd always encourage people to negotiate. Mm. Um, I, I would say generally speaking, you know, it's very much a personal decision whether or not you negotiate on the equity piece or the cash piece, right? A lot of that is indicative of where you are in your life and your personal situation. Mm. So as an example, someone with a family may be more inclined to negotiate on the cash piece. Right. Uh, but someone who doesn't have a family and perhaps are right out of school and they're more willing to take some risk and perhaps they see a lot of the, the benefit uh, or the potential upside of the company down the road may be more likely to negotiate more on the equity. But I'd, I'd offer, always encourage people to uh, to negotiate and make sure that you're giving the best offer. Yeah. Again, I, I very much have the philosophy that you should make your best offer. Uh, so I, I always try to do that because I don't want to go in under the assumption that someone feels that we're lowballing them or yeah. giving them an offer that's uh, below what the market is bearing for the role. Yeah, yeah. No, but that that's good advice because I think Sometimes people just aren't sure, especially women, they don't tend to negotiate that much. And what I've noticed is that if you have an offer from another startup at the same time, that can definitely help you negotiate a lot. So it's a good. <laughs> that's that's true. And I, I can speak as a woman. It is absolutely very hard to negotiate. Um, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of factors that play into your willingness to do so. Uh, you know, there's there's a ton of talk around, you know, not feeling like you're going to uh, be below the expectation, hmm. right? There's very much that fear of, oh gosh, if they give me this really high offer, then they're going to expect so much more out of me. And I'm not sure if I'm capable of that. Uh, and so I think that's a, something that plagues women. Um, yeah. I've, I've been there personally and it's a hard yeah. thing to get over, but go in there and, you know, company, the companies that will are transparent with you about how they go about their, their compensation evaluation process, um, is, is very good with you. You know, I found, especially with senior leadership hires that know very much what the market is bearing for certain positions. They may in fact have access to specific data themselves, 
the more you share with them around why you picked a certain salary and why you picked a certain equity package or amount, Mm. uh, the more likely they are to understand where you're coming from, as opposed to just picking a number in the dark. I see. Okay. So sort of showing your own research and, hey, this is the data that I found. uh, This is what I've done and presenting your case in a very data-driven way can help you a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people just feel like you're being more transparent with them and, you know, again, not just trying to pull the wool over their eyes and hoping that you're going to take a low salary for a position that you uh, should be, that warrants a higher salary. Absolutely. All right. I guess we are coming to to an end. Um, You shared a whole bunch of resources. Any, Any resources that you think that you missed out on? I know you mentioned LinkedIn, Glassdoor, Crunchbase Pro, which sounds like a great resource. I, I, I think you've covered everything, but is there anything that you think you've missed? No, I, I think that's a great snapshot. I mean, I think, again, not to <laughs> continue with the shameless plugs for Crunchbase, but the idea is that Crunchbase is going to be this master record of companies. Hmm. And so down the road, we'll have a tool, which we're calling the Crunchbase Marketplace, which will aggregate data from best of breed data companies. So okay. I mentioned a couple of them, obviously Glassdoor being one of them. Yeah. Where the idea is that you can view all of that data all in one place on a crunch base. Uh, so stay tuned for that because I think it'll be a huge resource no matter what you're doing, uh, any type of company research you're doing and being able to see that all in one place is going to be hugely beneficial. But I think the biggest piece of advice that I would give someone is get rid of all the preconceived notions you have. Uh, get out of your comfort zone. Again, it is really nice to be courted. Uh, you know, I have lots of friends who went through those consulting and, and investment banking interview tracks and have done the same things at business school. Um, get out of your comfort zone. You don't have to follow that exact path that perhaps that school defined for you. Um, you may not necessarily be on the same timeline as the rest of your, uh, you know, fellow students that you're going to school with, but, but stick to that. And I think, a lot of us really admire, especially in the recruiting world, people that are willing to go outside of this prescribed path that was defined for them in advance. Yep. All right. That's a great note to end on. So thank you so much, Jessica. This was wonderful, really. And uh, I, I may be pinging you for more episodes in the future because, I mean, there's so many areas over here where you can deep dive, like how to negotiate or offer or, you know, what sure. you should have on your resume. But thank you so much. This was great. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was fun and looking forward to continuing the conversation more. Yep. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. Just before you leave, do remember to sign up for our newsletter on our website, learneducatediscover.com, where we share updates on new episodes, a lot of career-oriented resources, and a lot of other inspiring stories and videos and podcasts that we find online. So do check it out at learneducatediscover.com. You'll also find the library of all the other podcasts that we've done in the past on the website. Of course, if you have any questions at all, or if you just want to say hello, you can always email us. Just drop us a mail at hello at learneducatediscover.com or tweet at us at LED underscore curator. That's LED underscore C-U-R-A-T-O-R. Of course, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash learneducatediscover or you can also subscribe to the podcast on either iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher or wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right, that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening and for your time. And until the next one, Bye-bye.